What's up, guys? I'm Will Cole, and this is my friend, Seamus Mullen. Hey, guys. So I'm a functional medicine practitioner based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but I see patients around the world via webcam consultations, men, women, just looking to get to the root cause of why they're struggling, people with autoimmune issues, hormone problems, digestive issues, all the stuff that my goal and passion is to help people reclaim their health. And Seamus here is a chef in New York City. Uh, Seamus has had a wild personal health story himself. In short, he basically died and came back to life. And when he did, he overhauled his lifestyle. So Seamus and I have been talking to our friends at Goop for a long time about personal transformations. And we finally decided to turn those conversations into a podcast. So we'll be here every Wednesday talking to a different guest. We're interviewing athletes, actors, people who struggled with addiction, people who had tough childhoods, people who have experienced crazy success, and people who've learned a lot from failure. And we're learning a lot from them. Sometimes it's a little heavy, but mostly it's a lot of fun. We hope you agree. All right, here we go. This is Goop Fellas. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Will, how are you this morning? I am doing so good. It's an awesome day to be alive, isn't it? Every day is. That's right. Well, not every day. Some, th- some days suck. But some days suck, but... Today's a good day. That's right. What did you have for breakfast today? I fasted myself, so you know me. Oh, you had super, nothing. Super compelling story. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll eat, I'll eat later. Don't worry. Yeah, It'll be you good know, stuff. I get that all the time. People always ask me, like, what did you have for breakfast? They want to know what a chef has for breakfast. I'm like, I had nothing. Because <laughs> I really, I generally do not eat in the morning, I know that you kind of do the same thing as well. Yeah. Not every morning, but, you know, yeah. keep it up. It's variability. It's a good thing for the body. I agree. I think a little bit of variety is, as they say, um, the spice of something. I can't That's remember how right. it goes. Life. Yeah, exactly. Life itself. You know, I, I personally, I don't know about you, but I think that breakfast is not necessarily the most important meal of the day. It's the most oversold meal of the day. It is. And it's, that's very countercultural because we just, as, as Westerners, we love our, our, you know, traditional breakfast and which can be amazing, right? There's nothing, no shame about that, but it's not always the best thing, especially when you look at what people are having for breakfast many times. Yeah, I know. If you're having a breakfast that's just sugar disguised as sugar, disguised as sugar, you're just kind of setting yourself up for catastrophe. Yeah. Anyway, our next guest is a pretty amazing uh, human being, and I bet he had an interesting breakfast. Yeah, I'm sure he's eaten some really strange foods <laughs> some very in his life. Odd foods, some how shall we say bizarre foods. <laughs> uh, yeah, our next guest is none other than four-time James Beard Award-winning chef Andrew Zimmer, and he's also uh, a restaurateur, an author, a food critic, and of course, as most people know, a TV personality. Yeah, this conversation is that we had with him is raw to the max. I mean, as far as him just talking about his past addiction, how he hit rock bottom, how he was homeless for a little bit. I mean, this is crazy. For anybody that knows Andrew Zimmer and to hear this side of him is, I, I think they're going to love this conversation and, the, and where he is at now and from where he was at his lowest. Spoiler alert, be the dog. That's right. That's changed my life. Totally. Guys. Completely has. That's right. Be the dog, everybody. You'll learn You'll learn what that means in a minute. Anyway, Andrew's been to over 170 countries around the world. The guy is one of the most well-traveled people I know. He's incredibly passionate and articulate. He is a philanthropist. He spends so much time working with addicts. 
Uh, he's done a lot of great work, and you know, I just love getting to know. I mean, I have a, I'm a I'm a good friend of Andrew and a big big fan, and I think he does fantastic work. But he doesn't often enough get to speak about what his real passion is, which is uh, which is helping other people and sharing his own journey. And I think that, um, I mean, I know I've heard the story, but this hearing it with him in studio really blew me away. Yeah. So hopefully. If you know somebody that's going through addiction or if you're going through addiction, that this can really speak to you and and you can reach out. I mean, his advice for anybody, like whether you know somebody or you are going through addiction, I think is one of the most helpful advice, pieces of advice I've ever received from somebody. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get to the conversation. Well, I'm so excited to have you here. Me too. Uh, and to talk about transformation, because you I'm sure you talk a lot about food and you talk about eating really weird shit, but I really want to talk about how you became Andrew Zimmern, the mm-hmm. inspirational human being who has touched so many people, probably many, many more than you can imagine. And still you flatter ma- me. No, no, but you maintain a level of humility that to me you've always been you've been someone who's helped me on my own journey. And your transformation. That's because I almost died. Well, I almost did too. Yeah. So if you almost die, I you, mean, it's you that feel a responsibility. It's the you know it's the hero's journey. It's yep. it's the it is that that stuff that mythology comes from. It's it's that thing that people have seized upon that 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 is transformative in our lives. You know, if you have as human beings, when we are forced to make a decision. We are forced to make a decision, and nothing does that other than pain. I wish it wasn't the case, but when things are going well and everything's happy, and things, I, I don't learn very much, and I'm sure it would be the same thing for anyone listening to this or you guys right. in the room, but pain and life's challenges forces you to confront things immediately, and you yeah. have to make a decision. Then you find out what you're made of, and then you learn and move on, and hopefully it's transformative. And if you're paying attention, then you have something to pass on to other people. That's why I was so excited to talk about this with you, because we've we've discussed a lot of these things privately, but I could talk about them with with you or other people who've had those transformative events in their lives forever there's nothing cooler to talk about mm-hmm. it's, it's what gives us a sense of purpose so you were an addict i was you were an alcoholic still am yeah i, I still how you, think how of you define my, that i still think of myself as one because i am i am so addicted to anything that makes me feel good I'm such a bright, shiny objects person. Mm -hmm. I have to be just really careful because even like shopping for a car, if I don't do it the right way, uh, honestly, can lead me down a crazy road. You you start to feel less than about what you can or can't afford. And, and, you know, the whole start to listen to those voices in your head. The committee starts to get louder. And if I'm not doing my daily thing. Yeah. And my weekly thing, my monthly thing, my my regular Check-in. stuff. Yeah. Um my brain becomes a much more dangerous neighborhood that I should never go into alone. It's awful. And well, and, and and so so quite frankly, yeah, I, I think of myself I try to keep it green. I think of myself currently as an addict and mm-hmm. I'm an addict, I'm an alcoholic. I have to I have to take medicine for that that comes in the form of Service work to other people, spiritual daily spiritual practices. Uh, for me, also twelve step groups. And when I'm doing that, 
stuff in my life goes well. When I lean into ambiguity in life, things go well. When I co-regulate with people before, before I operationalize, things go well. I mean, all the things addicts and alcoholics don't do. Mm-hmm. And but you know, I learned you know that everything I learned, I learned in kindergarten poster. <laughs> everything I learned, I learned the first you know six months that I was clean, and it just keep doing them over and over and over and over again. So why did it stick? I mean, that day in January twenty eighth, nineteen ninety two. Why did it stick? Yeah. I know you'd, you'd been down this path for a while. You tried. hit rock bottom, bounced off the ground, hit it again. Why, <laughs> what 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 made it stick? Um, I broke enough, but I smashed. You enough. hit it hard. Yeah, I mean that's right. Like how hard? Give me a picture of how hard it is. I mean, are you are you like redlining? Are you flatlining? Are you stealing cars? Like, are you what do you what what is your? Well, let me low, give you, low, let me low. give you let me give you an indication of of what it wasn't. Okay, because that that I think puts it more in perspective. So first week in September, nineteen seventy nine. I'm a freshman in Vassar College. I go into a blackout. Apparently, I drank a lot. Mm-hmm. on a Saturday night and I wound up in a hospital but it turned out I was arrested and that's how I wound up in the hospital and uh I wasn't used to drinking a lot I mean high school I went to high school in New York City you know mm-hmm. my friends in college who'd gone to high schools in in more uh, uh smaller towns more rural areas they drank because there weren't a lot of drugs yeah I grew up in New York City in the 70s you went and stole coke and pills and weed from your parents when I was in high school same thing it was so much easier to get drugs than to get alcohol oh yeah and, and why would you I mean there was booze in yeah. the house but you know why anyway turns out that I had gotten alcohol poisoning and I'd done some things that I shouldn't have it doesn't really I mean, tawdry silly little things police got called at this party I was the drunk crazy guy I get hauled off they put me in the hospital um Part of the condition, you know, I was, you know, at the school at the time was, you know, first offenders, police put you into a diversion program at the college. So I get out of the hospital and right away I have to go see D.B. Brown, one of the counselors Mm -hmm. at school. And he gives me what I later found out to be the Jelinek test. And he tells me that I'm chronic. I'm 18 years old and I'm I'm, I'm literally diagnosed as a chronic alcoholic and addict. Wow. And I didn't sober up till I was 30. Wow. Now, along the way, you know, sometimes that's enough to grab someone's attention. If somebody tells somebody, um, you're dying of cancer, 100% of those people say, okay, what do I have to do immediately? Like right. now. Right. What do I do? Alcoholism, drug addiction, you know, is a progressive illness. It only gets worse. But it has a mental component as part of it that tells you you don't have an illness. So I told DB to go screw himself. To go himself. fuck off. Yeah. yeah. No. I mean, happens are you kidding me? I'm invincible. I'm 18 years old. I don't have a problem. That's I had hair me. then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean. You still do. It's just, it's it, very carefully placed. It is. It is. <laughs> um, so, you know, you just keep going. You know, it, I just kept hitting Getting back on the elevator, and I just I kept hitting buttons to go up, but I just kept going down, down, uh-huh. down, and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse, and to the point that I couldn't keep a job. I burned every friendship. I was a user of people and a taker of things. Mm-hmm. I was squatting a building in Lower Manhattan um, with six or seven other guys who I drank with at the old Blarney Stone on Eleventh Avenue mm-hmm. uh, when I had. 
a place to live before I was evicted by the sheriff of New York uh, in February of 91. Wow. Um, January of 91. Good time uh, to be on the street. Well, that was the, you know, you know what I'm saying? What's really funny <laughs> is that I got evicted. I'll put all my stuff in storage, uh, which ended up being sold for pennies on the pound right. later on, which just was a, a a consequence that still is hard for me to swallow today. Just family possessions, uh-huh. lot of stuff like that that yeah. really meant something to me. But um, I immediately went out and drank. I went across this, you know, I went down after I was evicted. I went to the bar, it's, you know, shot in a beer bar. And I mean, real low lives. And the bottle gang that I was drinking in, I was a real lowlife. It was me. Uh, They were like, well, several people, you know, several of us are living in this building on Sullivan Street in lower Manhattan. And I'm like, cool. And they said, come on down. There's a space for you. And, you know, I lived there for 11 months. Uh, There were, you know, just casements on the windows, no no glass. Uh, We pirated electricity from a building to buildings over through the roof. I stole a bottle of Comet Cleanser every day, uh, every other day, every two days to sprinkle around the pile of dirty clothes that I passed out on each night so that rats and roaches wouldn't crawl over me. And I stole um, to, you know, to to support my the the booze that I needed, the uh, the food that I would eat when I wasn't getting it at a Salvation Army or Salvation Army or some other shelter or something like that. Uh, I didn't bathe for eleven months. I mean, it just was. I mean, it was a it was a mess, and that still wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Eventually, one day. I had the bright idea that there were winners and losers in life and that I was a loser and maybe I should, you know, just try to drink myself to death. Things weren't going that great. Mm-hmm. I was crossing that those lines every day that I swore I would never cross. And um, my big smart thing, you, you'll like this, being a restaurant guy, because uh, this is, you know, uh, 1990, New York, 1991, New York City. So there were those cafes on Madison Avenue. They still have a lot mm-hmm. of them. And uh, during the warm weather months, uh, European uh, Upper East Siders, w- this is before you know the mayor's office said, don't put your purses on the backs of your chairs. <laughs> and I would, I would walk up and down Madison Avenue looking across the street, see a purse, go by. I was much thinner. And uh-huh. You would have been really uh, excited about my speed. Uh, I would grab the purse. I would run the one block to, to Fifth Avenue, vault the wall at Central Park, shed the, the purse, strip the wallet, keep passport, credit cards, drivers, anything of that money if there was some. Oftentimes there wasn't. And then I would go down to my old drug dealers because at this point I was just drinking. Uh-huh. I knew something was wrong. Must be drugs. They're illegal. So I was just drinking, um, which made matters worse. I was way more out of control solely on booze than I ever was on my little heroin cocaine mixture that had kept me functional for uh-huh. eight years uh and i would go down to alphabet city and sell the credit cards and the passport and anything like that you know and that would usually keep me in you know money for a week and until i had to find another way to get get some scratch at this point was there anything else in your life going on was there, there was no, no career there was oh, no, no. Yeah, long like, there was no 
long since you know blew that up. There are my, no extracurricular interests outside of just getting by and and medicating. All I all I lived for, I was drinking all day with the bottle gang, stealing when I had to, and drinking more, and then passing out in this building. I did that every day for eleven months. Wow. Um, I mean, it was. I mean, it was absolute hell. And then I just said, I'm a loser in life. I'm, you know, stole some jewelry from my godmother, hocked it, you know, slammed some money down on the counter at a flop house hotel and said, you know, hold my calls yeah. and just tried to drink myself to death. It <laughs> oh didn't work. God. And I, and I ended up coming to, I wasn't dead. I don't know whether it was three days later or five days later. Can't tell you. Or mm -hmm. two days later. Can't tell you. Um, and call, did the one thing I had never done in 30 years of being a human being on planet Earth, which was I called a friend and I asked for help. My God. That's all. That's all. That was the only difference. And it's why anytime I get, you know, a tweet Correct or something on social media that says, you know, I'm struggling, what do I do? Yeah. And I just say, go to a meeting, find someone and tell them everything. Yeah. Just tell yeah. them because- that simple act of humility, that simple act of contrition, that that just take that weight off yeah. of your shoulders, and it is enough to not necessarily get sober, but it's enough to get you from day one to day two or three, right? For sure, and build on it, and build, and then you just keep, then you just keep going because yeah. it's 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 that first that first step that's just the physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally the toughest thing. To do. So up until that point, you had not asked for help? With anyone for anything ever. I knew better than you. I knew I knew how to do things. I Now, inside felt completely different. But outside, it's like, I wasn't teachable. Fuck you. I know how to do that. You know, I'm successful. I'm doing well. I'm cooking in great restaurants. I mean, you know, I was, I was you know... My resume of restaurants was, you know, impressive, you know, from Anne Rosenzweig at Arcadia to Thomas Keller at Raquel and, uh, you know, a whole bunch of places in between. I, you know, built, was building a small little restaurant empire with a guy named Steve Hansen uh, way back in the day. I opened up his. And for those of you that don't know, Steve Hansen is in, in our industry is a bit of a legend. He started to be our guest yep. and, and, and sold it for an, an, a huge amount of money and was just a very successful restaurateur and a very hands-on person. Yeah, and an, an amazing Operator, guy in yeah. many respects. Yeah. But we... Uh, he and his two partners, when they started Beer, before Be Our Guest was Be Our Guest, when it was their initials uh, corp, um, they hired me and we opened up uh, first Coconut Grill and then Isabella's and then had designs to do Ruby Foo's and Buckaroo, a bar with a, a friend of his named Jeff and, uh, you know, all the places that ended up happening mm -hmm. after that. Ruby Foo's was, was my dream uh, restaurant wanted to open up a Chinese restaurant in New York, um, but the the <laughs> my how things come full circle yeah, eventually right? yeah. exactly. <laughs> so it was uh, you know I I had a really good career front of the house back of the house and my skill set in the restaurant world had always kept me afloat until it just until I just crushed it and it couldn't sustain itself any longer and a lot of people I mean you know it. <laughs> 
you know, the I always joke around with Mark Forgione because and his dad Larry, who's now become a friend and and I see uh, at a lot of events and we joke about it. But I worked for Larry was so smart. I worked for him for about five hours uh-huh. one year, and he I wasn't even at my bottom, and he uh-huh. just looked at me and he just said, "You can't stay here." Wow. And he's like, "I know, I I know, I know who you are. I know what you are." You're so scared. If I give you a couple days here, you're going to make yourself absolutely invaluable to us. And then he's going to be fucked. And then, then you're, <laughs> because because, you're going you're gonna to walk because out. Because in those days when the grand cafes were starting, there weren't a lot of guys that could put out 200 plates of pasta in a 150-seat restaurant in four hours. I had worked at Ala Colomba in Venice. So – I worked in a lot of Italian restaurants, mostly doing the risotto station, because if you only had three or four burners and there were six risottos on the menu, you had to like, you had you to figure it out. You, you got to be creative. You got to be creative. Yeah. Um, and, you know, fancy restaurants were just starting to say, why are we not making money Sunday brunch? Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the restaurants that typically had been closed Sunday, Saturday and Sunday day were now doing brunch in the 80s in New York. So if you could do 200 egg dishes in a day... You know, yeah, you, yeah, you're worth your salt. You, you, yeah. you know, whatever you do, whatever, you know, that guy is stealing booze from us. He's he's monkeying around with the register. But we don't know what else he's doing. Make an, a perfect omelet. But that guy can put out 200. I was that guy I could put out 200 plates of eggs. So yeah. yeah, it was it was it was an absolute mess. But I had to really crash and burn all those other. To get back to your original question, all those other bottoms, I bounced up. You bounced off of it, and it was the last one that just splattered me flat and I ended up asking for it. And we all have our bottom in one way. Some are some people it's higher than others. I mean mm-hmm. the universe gets our attention in different ways. Some of us are really hard headed, some of us are less hard headed. I'm I have so much compassion for addicts and alcoholics and people with mental health issues, the homeless why I devote so much time uh to helping those communities because they're diseases my disease Mm -hmm. has that mental component that tells us we don't have a disease and it's so stigmatized that if you in to to actually ask for help is like an admission of 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 failure (laughs) but it's right it's a sign of strength yeah and in fact it's the strongest thing you can do i mean i'm sure that along that path you probably had plenty of people that were telling you andrew you need help you need help you need to do this and the worst we don't listen to it you you isolated the the thing that I talked to, especially young people about, I was convinced that all the people that were trying to help me were the enemy. Doctors, parents, friends, friends' parents, mm-hmm. teachers, counselors, sports coaches, summer camp counselors. Like I could just keep going on and on and on. Uh, psychology, whatever it was. You know, you start to get, and and I realize now, every single one, the one thing all those people have in common is they just cared about me. And some professionally, you know, I thought teachers were the enemy. Teachers are are a godsend. There are people who've decided, in my life, I want to make other people better human beings. So I'm going to dedicate myself to teaching. So what do you do now? Because... I, it's this is something I struggle with. I have a bit of the hero complex where mm-hmm. I see a problem and I I want to fix it. Sure. I have friends who are who are addicts and mm-hmm. I want to help them and and it's almost like the more that I help, the more I try to help, the more I'm almost enabling them to continue to mm-hmm. go down this path that's not getting them closer to actually realizing who they could be and acknowledging yeah. their illness. And how do you help somebody when you see them burning and you know they're going down in flames and yet 
there isn't anything you can really do other than show them love. Exactly. It's a gift. For me, it was a gift. That moment of clarity. It was a gift. And I, I honestly believe that it was divinely inspired, however you choose to mm-hmm. define that. Um, I believe that the world is not hurtling aimlessly, going nowhere for no reason. It just can't be. It's too complex. I mean, just look at all of us in this mm-hmm. room. I mean, it's just, there's no way this is no, it didn't pointless and meaningless, no. right? We don't know what that is, regardless of what the last episode of Lost, <laughs> you know, <laughs> leads you to conclude. Right. Um, but we're, you know, this isn't, you know, we're not on this rock for no reason. So I do believe in something bigger than myself. And so to me, that day for me, when I had that moment of clarity, it was a gift. When other people get that is, it comes at different points. Mm-hmm. And all that you can do is yes, love them, practice dignity and respect and compassion. Part of that is truth telling. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard. I mean, yeah. I, I have to stand outside of doors when I'm going to talk to someone and just say to myself over and over again, Someone told me the truth and it got my attention. Someone told me mm-hmm. the truth and it got my attention. My dad, when I so I called him from treatment, I'm like 15 days clean. I'm like, Dad, you know, are you going to come out and do the family program? You know, I'm 15 days, blah, blah, blah. And my dad said, call me when you're two years sober and hung up. Wow. And the reason was he had thought I was dead when I had gone homeless. He had put up with me for so many years emotionally for himself he was protecting himself he couldn't do it anymore it was too heartbreaking if he invested more emotions in me and then i just you know stomped all over them and tossed them away he he couldn't handle it one more time now he ended up coming and seeing me after about a year but because he couldn't stay away but telling me his truth was one of those moments like i'll never forget and that that Maybe got me from point five to point seven. Right, you're like I'm going to. I'm I mean, going to be two years sober, and I mean, I'm going to watch me. I'm going to call you. I have to. Yeah, I have to because at that point, I just wanted, I just wanted to be alive. So my point is, people tell the truth mm-hmm. to you, right? And you have to, you have to be a truth teller in the. Um, in the social justice warrior world. Yeah. You know, whatever whatever it is. And people make a lot of jokes about that, you know, oh, speak truth to power, blah, 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 blah. But if you're if you're dealing with another human being and they are in crisis, yeah. now sometimes with certain uh, mental health issues, I mean, I'm on the board of services for the underserved, you know, uh, we have people who actually have mental health issues where they physically need to be intervened on. Mm-hmm. I have seen people... Uh, who are so far down the path in terms of their addiction to alcoholism that as friends, we need to intervene on them and physically place them in uh, somewhere where they can dry out and they can they can be talked to because they're not in a position to be talked to and hear the truth. Yeah. But there are recommendations for it. I mean, you know, I've, I've gotten calls from friends and, you know, my wife or my husband is, what, what do I do? It's like, yeah. leave the house, take the kids, take the dog, go somewhere, come over here, sleep for the night. If he breaks every window in the house or she breaks everything, you know, the, whatever. So yeah. 
And we'll go over there and talk to them tomorrow. I mean, you can't talk to someone who's in their cups. No. Right? And the thing is, is that the, the one of the hardest things about speaking the truth, and this is something that I struggle with all the time, mm-hmm. is that when you do confront someone with the truth, you have to be prepared that the reaction that you're going to get from that person is not going to be a good reaction. <laughs> 99.9% well, of the time, it is going to be, it may be, it, it may be down once it sets in, but generally speaking, the initial reaction is going to be one of anger thrown back at you. It depends. Now, I agree with you. However, like recognizes like. So, you know, my friends, and certainly in the in the food community, mm-hmm. I mean, every week I get, our office gets two calls from restaurant owners, managers, PR people, agents, you know, whatever, saying, okay, I know you, I know you do this as a sideline. You know, the list of people that I've helped access treatment yeah. or whatever is pretty large at this point. And, you know, I can talk to other addicts and alcoholics and have a conversation with them and say, here's what happened. To, I, I don't care. I mean, I do care what happened to you. But I just tell them my story yeah, and ask them if they can relate to any of that. And then the chink in the armor is open because it's not about – it's not about them. I'm just sharing my experience, strength, and hope. And I'm able to tell, you know, conclusively, this is a progressive disease. You will die from it or you will get well. When you choose to do that is up to you. But here you have one of those moments where you can get up, you know, and we have a, you know, a car waiting or a plane ticket, whatever, and someone's going to take you to treatment and you can choose that. And that's what interventions are all about. Or you can keep doing what you're doing which is drink or drug until the bitter end, and it will kill you. I mean, that's that's just what happens. So I find it's easier for me to talk to other addicts and alcoholics. And the, when we tell our stories to each other, here's where people who aren't out addicts and alcoholics can, I think, learn something from the, the, the process by which other alcoholics help other alcoholics. When you look at it as a mental wellness construct, what we're really doing is we're co-regulating with another human being mm-hmm. prior to operationalizing with them. Mm-hmm. So let's say let's say you and I are married and I come home and I'm screaming, oh, Seamus, uh, you know, I, I pulled out in the car park too fast and I bashed the, the rear. I got so unsettled because of the mm-hmm. fender bender and I wanted to race home to beat the traffic. And I know tonight was a really important dinner and we're going out with friends. And, you know, I don't know where my phone is and I'm freaking out. I'm having the worst day possible. And if the first words out of your mouth are... Well, did you did you call the security guy at the office to see if they could find the phone on your desk? I'm like, fuck you. I didn't need you to solve my problem. Right. I thought of that. I just want you to be my friend. I just want you to hear what I'm be what empathic. I'm going through. Exactly. Be empathic. So if your response is Oh my God, that just sounds awful. Mm-hmm. I would be losing it too. Yeah. Do you let's let's have an orange juice or whatever it <laughs> yeah. is, right? Here's a distraction. No. Yeah. But, yeah. but you, th- then yeah. you're Leave then it's love. like, yeah. oh I'm I'm connecting with someone else yeah. and then we can operationalize. Then I'm in a place where I can hear right, it. Right. I, I may tell you, Oh great, I called the security guy. Do you think that's a good idea? Yeah. You know, yes, no, let's hop in the car. We have time before the dinner. Let's go look for whatever it is, right? Um 
the the fact of the matter is is that you have to co-regulate with other human beings to get that empathy connection yeah. so that you then can operationalize you got to jump in the mud together with yes. you got to jump in the mud be the dog yeah yeah, yeah. my mm-hmm. my kid is you know struggles with a lot of things and uh you know i'll i'll leave it at that i don't like to talk about it very much not because i don't like to talk cuz i love to talk <laughs> you um, know. but it's his story yeah and uh in working with him the single best advice that i ever got for parents with children that are going through a lot of stuff is be the dog because the dog is perfectly empathic if you throw a shit fit and collapse on the (laughs) couch the dog does not go up to you and say oh you're going to be in trouble or that (laughs) window is you know irreplaceable that you know you smash this the dog just gets up on the couch and puts its head in your lap yeah love that dog doesn't care so the idea as parents just to be the dog right that's the same thing the dog is just perfectly it's co-regulating with you and immediately and if you can be the dog with other people and just be there with them that honors them that's that dignity and everyone says well how do you sprinkle someone with dignity and respect when they've just done something horrible it's like how about just be with them yeah just be with them you mentioned spiritual practice being a major part of your daily life yeah what does that look like i did it in the elevator coming up here there's i have a whole set of different prayers and mantras and things like that that i mean it's been 27 years i mean it's called spiritual practice for a reason you have to practice it it's not easy at first and you're you know i had gurus and you know yodas and advisors who were you know at first were like write this down on a piece of paper laminate it and keep it in your wallet Mm -hmm. and every time you feel angry jealous resentful or afraid take this out and do these four things Mm-hmm. And now I do them. It's on a certain page in one of the the books that one of my twelve step groups uh, reads regularly. I mean, it's 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 an instruction for living that really works. There are other little prayers that I have that take me out of my selfish place. I mean, I'll I'll tell you the honest truth. I'm in New York for four or five hours tonight. I have a dinner that's a job interview. I just. You know, I've got three or four things like this. Seamus reached out to me and I was immediately like, yes, because if a friend asked me, especially with this kind of material and especially because of the friend that Seamus is, I just said yes right away. And then my office is like, where where are you going to find the time to do that? So I'm on the roller coaster in New York, all New Yorked up, getting the, I'm just, I'm just New Yorked to shit, right? You know, because it's, I'm hustling. I live in Minneapolis, Yeah. right? So when I come to New York, it's like meeting, 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 meeting. And there's always something on it, and I'm in that thing, and is the restaurant, t- is that going to be good? Uh, you know, and I, my head is literally self, 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 me, me, me. So I know I'm coming up here, and I want to make sense, and I want to be in the moment with you guys and not be on my phone and not thinking about all that other stuff. So the only thing that works for me is there's a handful of little prayers, one of which is about 60 seconds long, and I said it in the elevator and the hall with the door open, I walk through and I, you know, I could just say it now really fast. Mm-hmm. And I do that, that one particular 60 second, I call it a prayer, before I do any public speaking, before I talk to another person, before anything, I say it every single time, every time and have for, well, it used to be part of my morning prayer routine where I get out of bed and sort of hit my knees and just go through a little three or four minute routine. But it, uh, 
now I use that piece two or three times a day before I'm doing something. Sometimes even before getting on a call. If I feel disquieted after this many years of spiritual practice, I know what to do to quiet my head down. And that's the toughest part. Often isn't helping someone take that first step in getting dry. It's like if you want to be sober, there's sobriety. And then after 10 years, how about emotional sobriety? Yeah. Want to try that on for size? Because that's <laughs> really fucking hard. I mean, I've been yeah. doing that now for the last 17 years and just cracking the the, the, the outer limits yeah. of it. And that is, that's the kind of stuff that is just so fat that I'm such a beginner at. Well, that's the shit that you're burying through your your substance and you're burying oh, yeah. through your habits and through all of this stuff. Totally. So when we look back now at 27 years sober, is that yep. what, my math is yep. more or less like that? Yep. Uh, I 27 know, years and five and a half weeks. Don't cheat me. Okay, so you no <laughs> cheating. Cheat We're giving me, you, because you, you've earned it all. <laughs> but we know that you've earned it with the support of many, many other people. You didn't yeah. earn it on your own. Did zero, no. zero on my own. So when you look back on that, and and I think for me, one of the things that I know that my experience suffering, dying in the ICU, mm-hmm. going through a, a, a horrific relationship with both food, substance, mm-hmm. a lot of toxic people in my life, that I, I fostered all these things and I brought a lot of these things into my life. When I look back, I, I spent 11 years sick and... Those were the most important years of my life in sure. so many ways. And I would not... Taught you everything. Taught me everything. I would not change them for anything. Nor I. Your story's your most valuable asset. That is the that is the currency that defines who you are and gives you purpose. So all this other shit that you do in the world, which is great stuff. Mm-hmm. You eat weird stuff out there. You're eating crickets and, and sure. eating stuff that you nobody else... the paycheck else, stuff. Exactly. The paycheck yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. That's all important, too. And there's, and there's, there's an expression of who you are. But at your essence... Your real work, the real honest, deep work, is the work that you do as an inspirational human being. And that's something that, that to me, is so valuable. But you make that, you slide that in. You slide Just it like in everywhere. You have. you have to. You yeah. have to, because otherwise you're not complete. When I sold the show to Travel Channel, Bizarre Foods, the, it was Fat White Guy Goes Around World Eats Bugs. But I knew it was a Trojan horse because yeah, oh yeah, what I was yeah. trying to do was to create a show about practicing patience, tolerance, and understanding in a world that wasn't having any of it and was constantly defining itself by our differences. Yeah. And I saw the toxicity in that. And I left restaurants because I realized I needed a bigger platform and I needed to take my, I call it my recovering life. Yeah. And my daily life, the paycheck stuff, and I needed them to overlap. There had to be some Venn diagram shit. And I didn't know whether it was going to be 10% overlap or 80% overlap, but there was no overlap where I was doing. Now, other people have found a way to do it in restaurants. I just didn't. And I knew that I could tell a story and I could message stuff. And I knew by studying the TV world that the first year, all I had to do was make the show popular. Then I could change it into whatever I want. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, and just the the very first show, the very first episode of Bizarre Foods is all about me looking at the camera and making three Stooges faces and eating horrifically disgusting things. And the very last episode of Bizarre Foods that ever aired was the Underground Railroad show uh-huh. that was following the a group of freedom seekers from enslavement in Kentucky, just a hundred and so miles 
through the state up to the Ohio River and crossing into what would become safety in Ohio, uh-huh. and then they would be t- taken north into Canada. And we studied the food and the history of, of, of that those hundred miles. And you just look at where that show came from, and that's that's the work. You know, it's those shows. It's it's what happened after I put the first fermented walrus anus in yeah. my mouth. Which, by the way, has it's, value because I do believe some people just need entertainment. Oh, yeah. And I'm pretty yeah. funny. Us, and, you, and, like, you know, some people come back and the way smile. they relax is yeah. to sit on the couch and watch me shove something horrific on a rerun into yeah. my mouth. And I love that they mm-hmm. love that. But I love the people that see the... The real gravitas. The, underneath yeah, stuff. Yeah. And, and now... I, I legitimately, you know, kind of like tithing, you know, there's mm-hmm. certain churches. I mean, I'm a Jewish kid from New York, so I really don't know how this works. So anyone who, <laughs> who does, please correct me. Yeah. But where you you commit at your house of worship that a certain percentage of your time and your money is going to go to the, the group, the mm-hmm. entity, the church, whatever. Um, I do that with my time in my business. Yeah. Where it's a certain percentage goes to, you know helping others, charitable works, that that kind of stuff. And much a lot of people haven't lasted that long working with me because they're they're like, well, well that doesn't help the bottom line and that yeah. doesn't you know, th- how do we measure ourselves in success when we're doing that? And I'm like, we don't. And it's we don't know how many people we help or who we don't, but if we don't try and we're not doing it, so we're just going to say 25% of everything we do, everything we touch, all our do- everything is going to go towards not us mm-hmm. and and that's that's just the easiest way for us all to look at it and really cool really cool stuff happens and i get to you know i mean now that it's not just the sober community and that's where i learned how to do stuff and, and do a lot of work and yes i'm still on on boards of a couple places that mm-hmm. exclusively deal with chemdep and stuff like that but then, because I'm a food guy, it went into uh, hunger security issues, mm-hmm. uh, which led me, because I'm a globalist and I'm traveling around, to refugee crisis and stuff. So now the IRC, just the International Rescue Committee, just this last year, named me one of their voices. And I'm working on a domestic program for them, UN uh, Development Program. I'm going to the Sahel in Africa and then to... Um, a Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh. Wow. Um, and that's going to be, I, those two trips are in June, and then they're going to announce a program that I'm doing uh, for international refugees. And it's, it you, you just keep growing that, you know, what your expertise is. If I can help people and start helping them, you mentioned the word before, that trauma. The one thing it all has in common is trauma. And I mean, look, I'm 27 years sober. I still go every year to either like Onsite or the Meadows or Hazel and Betty Ford or another wellness community Mm -hmm. and do a three-day workshop, a five-day workshop, whatever, on intimacy or trauma where I still have most of my stuff. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the emotional sobriety work that I do lingers in those areas. And it gets better every... You you have a thing on the back of your phone that says better than yesterday. And I... I'd never heard that phrase, uh, but I love it, and and that's really what that's it's all about. Is that each I just try to be better, and and optimal word there, try. Yeah, exactly. You know, because <laughs> it doesn't work out every day. Well, and and I break out into a rash of selfishness that sometimes gets me in a ton of trouble. But at least I have a mechanism in my life to actually say sorry, make amends, have it be meaningful. 
connect with other people, try to be a stand-up guy. And build on it. You just have yeah. to build. There are no mistakes. There's just lessons. Yeah. And you build on it and you build on it. Andrew Zimmern, so, so happy to have you with us and to continue to share what you do because it's really important. And, and I do believe we talk about contagion when it comes to illness. I think mm-hmm. health, I think love, those are even more powerful contagions. And the more we can spread of them, the better this place. Thank you for letting me share all this with you today. I Amen. could do this forever. <laughs> Thanks for being on. Thanks so much. <laughs> no, it's great. And Thank wait, you, everyone. Wait, one quick yeah, question. Sure. Everyone knows who you are, but just for everybody who, the, 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 like the Luddite under a rock, mm-hmm. if they want to learn more about what you do, AndrewZimmer.com. Perfect. I mean, it's that's one-stop shopping for, for everything. everything. AZ. And we actually put a little wellness thread into my new kids' book. So shameless plug for it's a great AZ book, by the way. The, thank you, AZ yeah. and the Lost City of Ophir, that's with awesome. real kids yeah. that have real issues, but they solve them on their own and without the help of adults. And if parents want to check that out for their kids it's an amazing grade level reader adventure it's an adventure book it's awesome uh but that's azworldexplorer.com but also if you go to my website you'll see it too great thank you so much thank you got a question you'd like us to answer the goop team is keeping a running list for us so just hit them up at goop on instagram or facebook at the end of every episode, we'll be answering a question from one of you guys. If you have a question about us or about men and wellness or really anything else is on your mind, just let us know. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies and ways to approach health and well-being. And I love to talk about food and cooking and, well, reality is anything. I just love to talk. So send your questions over to the Goop team on Instagram or Facebook. As Goop likes to say, nothing is off limits. Hey, Will, you know what time it is? What time is it? AMA time. Yes. So Mac asks us, why do I feel like my initial reaction is to solve someone's problem versus just listening to them? Do you guys find yourself mansplaining? What do you do? Ooh, this is a good question. He's totally right because I think so many of us dudes, what we do is we... Yeah. Conversation isn't a dialogue. It's rather like a, you're just waiting for your opportunity to say your piece. Mm-hmm. And that idea of being an active listener is is hard. Yeah. It doesn't come a lot of times, men and women, they don't want their problem solved. They just want to be heard. Right. And it's kind of reminding yourself of that, that not everything is meant to be solved. <laughs> and mm-hmm. sometimes the solution is just listening. Well, it may not be necessarily even solving someone's problem, but just uh, just being able to be empathic to what they're going through. Yeah, your role is yeah. that. And the reality is none of us can solve someone else's problem. Mm-hmm. We can't, you know, as I like to say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't teach it to fish. That's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, the reality is, and it seems absurd to say that, but the truth is that um, the best thing that you can do is kind of be like, hey, wow, yeah, I get it. That really sucks. I'm glad you told me. Yeah. You know, not, this is what you need to do with your life. Yeah. You need to, because I don't know what the fuck you need to do with your life. I'm not living your life. I barely know what the fuck to do with my life. Um, <laughs> the best thing I can do is say, yeah. I can relate to that. And to to be an active listener and be empathic. Totally. And then from that, people can get so much insight just from that. They just feel like not, they're not alone and they have the courage to maybe make decisions that they already know. They just wanted somebody just hear, to hear them. That's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Will and I would love to know what you think about Goop Fellas. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. And we hope you'll be here again next Wednesday. Talk soon.